Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster, and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who's seen new leaders take over teams dozens of times and knows what works. If they run in thinking they're Superman or Superwoman, then they're going to make a grave mistake and, and their teams will bunch up and, and go against them. And they know that the best way to build teams is on the job, sharing the work. We don't tend to build our best teams through formality. We do it in the margins, we do it in the jobs, we do it when that platoon commander's mucking in. If your soldiers are building trenches, there is nothing that will open a soldier up to just talking to you and feeling like you're part of the team than you getting dirty in that trench and, and getting your hands on. Warrant Officer Class 1 Paul Carney is the Army Sergeant Major, the most senior soldier in the British Army. He joined as a combat engineer in 1997 and has been on operations in Macedonia, Kosovo, Iraq and Afghanistan. His junior and senior non-commissioned officer roles are spread between close support armoured engineering and general support engineering. He was squadron sergeant major of 20 field squadron 36 engineer regiment, regimental sergeant major at 22 engineer regiment and command sergeant major of 3rd UK division. Mr Kearney has instructed troop commanders and sergeants on demolition and bridging at the Royal Engineer Warfare Wing and attended the Intermediate Command and Staff Course Land as a WO1. I felt very lucky to have this conversation with the Army Sergeant Major. It explores the changes in leadership as a soldier moves through the non-commissioned ranks. I began by asking him about the step from sapper, the term for a private soldier in the Royal Engineers, to Lance Corporal and the beginning of his leadership journey. We didn't call it leadership training. We, we just called it development, training, and we use the rank system probably more so than we do nowadays. My early mentorship came back in that guard room as a young Lance Corporal. It was quite bolshy and quite boisterous, and my guard commander would use the time that we had in the guard room to develop me, to bring me on and, and advise me on, on areas where I could improve on in myself, but how I could get the best from, from the people below me. Something that's quite different in the engineers to, say, the infantry is you spend a lot more time being detached and attached to other units. And I believe your first, your second operational tour was to do this in Iraq, on Telic. That's correct. What were the specific challenges about that? And was it harder to manage your team outside of the regiment? I was an electrician that was attached to a medical unit and I'd done a year and a half with them. What was difficult first was the culture change. To go from an organisation where I was one of 600 engineers to an organisation where I was the only engineer in a unit of uh, medics and RLC was, was difficult in itself. And I took a, an element of arrogance with me, which I thought gave me confidence at the time, but I would probably say it was cockiness and, uh, and needed to, to refine those edges. I was in a singleton post, which meant I was quite a, a singleton in the team. And teams would be added to me to help me to deliver what I had to, in this case, electrical power supply. 
and having a bunch of medics or RLC that don't really want to be doing what you want them to do was complex. I used the opportunity to that they were learning a new skill by working with me, that they were going to get something out of it to develop themselves, and that, that brought them on pretty quickly. And people like to do things that are different. So once they got to work with me for a little bit, they saw I work in a relatively relaxed environment. They enjoyed it, and they sought out opportunities to work with me in the future. So rather than simply telling them they had to do it, you spent some time persuading them in the run-up to it. And as you continued the task reminding them of the benefits of doing this task to them not just to the mission yeah exactly that so so everyone wants power even more so nowadays but back then certainly in iraq having a light bulb in your tent was really powerful and important nowadays i'd say your electricians could charge whatever they want to make sure phones and laptops are charged was there a time as a lance corporal where you suddenly understood the responsibility of looking after your soldiers so uh, it was quite early on. Nowadays, a lot of people have individual rooms, but we were in shared rooms, three or four man rooms out in, uh, out in Germany. And so it was a real honour to get your own room. And I had a big room. So I remember being absolutely chuffed a bit. It's a real marking. And then um, I came in about two weeks later and there was a brand new soldier in the corner of the room. And I kind of looked at him and said, hey, what, what, are you doing in the, what are you doing in my room? And he said, oh, I've, I've been told by the troop staff sergeant that I'm sharing a room with you. Well, as the Bolshe Lance Corporal I told you about, I, I went straight over to my staff sergeant and had a chat. And he said, um, well, what you need to understand, Corporal Carney, is that you're a, a big influence on this troop. You're already the biggest guy, but people respect you. And by... Putting this young soldier into your room means that he will be looked after. You won't allow that soldier to be initiated. You won't allow people to come in in the middle of the night and send them to the bar or, or, or try and make them do things that they shouldn't be doing. He said, and on top of that, you will also end up developing them and making them better, stronger, more confident and believe what, what's in the army. And And that for me was really defining and... We can sometimes look back in the past and say we didn't do everything right. But our senior NCOs are the ones that made us today. And, and I took that example away with me. And actually, I took that away when, as an RSM, and one of my corporals said a, a similar thing. He came into my office and said, I don't think we're looking after our newest soldiers um, well enough. And I always listen to my corporals. And I said, uh, well, what do you think we can do different? And he said, well... When a new person comes in, we give them the last new person to take them around camp, to talk them through what they're going to do, what's expected, and, and to introduce them to their troop that they've been assigned to. I said, but that's no good, because the next new person doesn't really know anything. They haven't learned anything because they try to learn off the last next new person. So as a corporal, I want to take on the new person. And in the same way that I did as a Lance Corporal to bring that young soldier on, he wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to be able to show them round camp, be able to talk about probably eight years of experience, so to have a real knowledge of what it's like to be in the field army and pass on the benefits of being in the army, but also to offer that level of protection, mentoring and support so that that soldier feels included from day one and part of the team. And also eliminates things like bullying to an extent. Completely and utterly. We believe in our section commanders. We use them all the time. 
if you're under that, that protection, under that umbrella of that corporal, they're going to make sure things like uh, initiations, bullying are, are, are destroyed and got rid of. So from there you went into being a corporal with 3-9 Engineer Regiment and then you had a team of engineers working with you, mostly doing airfield repair. In an environment like that where you're very much on your own with the team, you're going to develop close bonds of friendship. How did you learn to manage that, that bridge between being of a very similar age and coming from exactly the same rank background as the people you were with, but also having command and authority? Well, actually, my team, we worked out that near enough all of us were, were exactly the same age. It's that balance of uh, moving through, I guess, the sort of leadership styles. So most of the time being that transformational leader, bringing people on, developing them. And I have quite a laissez-faire attitude. But believe me, that uh, transactional side of me can come in and, and even at times that authoritarian side. I learned that from being a young sapper with my first section commander, Phil Robinson, that you can give the rope, but as someone begins to hang themselves, then you pull it back in again and um, you reset your place in that command structure. Have you got any examples of what Phil did that taught you that during your early stages as a sapper? So when we were in Macedonia looking to move into Kosovo, we had a lot of ammunition and as engineers, we had a lot of explosives. So you had a 432 that looked like uh, sort of wacky races with the amount of equipment on it. And we'd have to do daily checks on all of that equipment. We would originally have to unload every single one of our magazines and, and count out every individual round. But as time went on with the checks, we started using dipsticks, which is quite a common practice. And one of our friends lost, lost a round, which I will say we found not long afterwards. But, but that led to Phil making us go back to the old ways of checking our ammunition to reinstate in us the importance of what we were doing and why we need to do those checks. So 432 is an armoured vehicle. You can get a lot of ammunition and a lot of explosives in there. And a round is, it's a single bullet, that's exactly it. Sorry, yeah, to, to use all the, the military payloads. Uh, no, but the point is you're looking at a real level of integrity there from Phil, where it's like it might just be one round, but it means that we have to ensure that we're doing all of this properly and taking everyone back to reduce complacency, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it can be really easy to build that complacency in. And so restating his authority when it was required when, when he saw that complacency coming in, was so important. And that's what I use similarly in, in Iraq. Once you promoted to sergeant, you were in Afghanistan. Can you talk to me a bit about your time there and some examples of where leadership became difficult for you? Like you really had the sense of the responsibility. I think it's worth mentioning first that I was in recce troop and at the time... There was a lot of reconstruction going on in Afghanistan. This was on Herrick 6. But the infantry were out running fighting patrols. So for us to be able to get our technical engineers out to make sure that the work was being done properly, it was decided that recce troop would form a, a patrol. And so... So you'd be out patrolling on the ground, full fighting equipment. Exactly. Just as the infantry were doing. Exactly that. We were well trained alongside the Mercians who we were supporting. So you uh, had to do that in pre-deployment training. What was that like for you? 
That was unbelievable. As I said before, soldiers like difference. And if you take a another arm and they get the opportunity to do some infantry stuff, we're going to grab it with both hands. And 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 we needed to do that. And we needed to build confidence in our team. We needed to build confidence in the Mercians that we could deliver what was expected of us. And even to the point when we deployed out before the Mercians, because the engineers always ripped first, we had to, in short order, build confidence with the Marines that we were taking over. And so as the sergeant, it was very much your role to make that happen within your troop. Yeah, so kind of as a part of the give, we were quite heavy with sergeants. So we had three sergeants in the patrol, which is very heavy-handed. Um, but it was to, again, build that confidence to say, hey, we're, we're putting people with experience in these roles to buy out the shortfall that we necessarily have in, in our infantry skill set. And as that tour went on, were there times where you really felt that weight of leadership, where you had to take complete control of a situation, maybe in ways you hadn't been expecting in the run-up to it? As the sergeants, we got pulled out of that patrol. So we were operating out of Lashkagar in a more benign area. Again, that trade-off with our skill set. But because the patrol was delivering, we were meeting what was expected of us and we were demonstrating our professionalism, it was decided that that patrol would be moved up to Sangin. And not only would it be moved up to Sangin, but some of the more junior sergeants like myself would be removed from the team because the trust had been built in that team. So I was pulled away and was left in Lashkagar to operate in Babaji with the Mercians and patrolled with them. But the team at the time... They didn't want to leave. Soldiers like a little bit of routine. They had a comfortable location in Lashkagar and they knew the ground really well. So when they were first told that they were going to move to Sangin, I, I personally thought that was a, was a great thing. But, but a lot of the soldiers weren't necessarily so happy. And so it took the likes of myself and, and the other sergeants in the team to, to, to let them know, look, the fact that you are delivering here and that you're being moved into a new, more austere and certainly more dangerous environment is a demonstration of what you've achieved so far on this operation and that you should grab that opportunity to continue to de demonstrate that. What ways did you use to pass that information on to them, to persuade them in that way? Was it just chats in the cookhouse? Was it team briefs? What different ways did you use to make that happen? So predominantly, it was those small conversations, what, what you'd call back in barracks, water cooler discussions. Well, actually, let's get round the tents. Let's get round uh, our, our living quarters and let's have those discussions. Let's pull out what your concerns are. Is it the threats? Is it your, the living conditions? Is it not knowing the ground? And talking all of those through with the team. And again, reinforcing that, that sense of achievement that, that they should feel in what they've delivered so far. So recognising their strengths and the weaknesses, but also recognising their fears, concerns and their ambitions. Completely and utterly. And I think so much of what we do in the army, you can uh, break out with conversation. Someone like myself, I'll, I'll put my hand up for everything and I, and I want to be involved in absolutely everything. But other people might not. There might be trepidation, there might be anxiety. And having that conversation that almost the problem shared is a problem halved and doesn't get rid of the anxiety completely. But what it does do, it allows people to know that they've got it off their chests and, and answer some of those questions. 
I think that shows the value of non-commissioned officers within the army so clearly because you understand where they've come from. You've been there yourself. What is the challenge of working through those ranks and the steps from corporal to sergeant, as an example, as, as your roles and relationships change? So I, I, I think, uh, and, and I've seen this plenty of times and, and probably with a bit of reflection, I, I was very similar myself. But those steps between those key ranks, that corporal into sergeant, so you go from looking after, certainly in infantry terms, an eight-person section into a 30-person platoon. And now your relationship isn't a command relationship between your young officer as it was with the section commander. You're now an advisor, an influencer, a mentor. There's this element of growing up. And if you think about when you first become a sergeant, you're kind of at the bottom of a pecking order again in senior NCO sense. So it can be really easy and we have to be really careful not to be drawn back into that corporal status where you can kind of be top of the tree. Those friends that you've worked with in the similar sense of when we move from private up into Lance Corporal, you've now got that that same thing, just with a little bit more experience into the corporal sergeant space. And I'd argue again into that sergeant warrant officer space. And when you were mentoring other NCOs through that step, what kind of things would you say to them to help them do that well? What are the behaviours and thoughts that make a difference? Certainly through the, the corporal to sergeant space, you, you need to create that space. You need to understand that there is now a, a big gap between what you do. That as a platoon sergeant, you're going to be now sitting in on those company meetings. You can have that tight relationship with your platoon commander. You're going to be defining the next career steps of those corporals. So you now need to have that air gap that you don't necessarily need at the junior NCO private level because you're going to be having so much of an influence on those people. And as a senior non-commissioned officer in SNCO, that's the rank of sergeant and then colour sergeant or staff sergeant, you have a really new role, which is that you're mentoring and coaching the the junior non-commissioned officers, the corporals and lance corporals, but you're also mentoring, coaching and working with usually a young officer what was that experience like for you? Are there any examples you have from your time where you were in an operation or in barracks and you were having to direct and help an officer deliver stuff in a way that might get better buy-in? So I, I was really fortunate that I, I kind of got given acting troop commander status on a, a construction tour out in Cyprus and the rest of the squadron were at one end of the island and I, I was uh, operating out of Akateri. So that's a role that would normally have a young officer doing it? Exactly that, yeah. And, and I felt really fortunate that firstly, I was empowered by my chain of command, but secondly, the freedom that I was given at that end of the island to influence my, my troop but influence that end of the island to support our current job that we were doing. But whilst I was on that job, I had to go back to the UK to do a course. And they sent a young officer out to to visit my site and always question everything. So I, I spoke to my OC and I said, what is it? Am I not doing a good enough job? Do you not trust me? What have I done wrong to do this? And he said, no, no, you're doing a great job, Sergeant Carney. I'm sending the officer to learn from you. You're running a great site. You're independent away from the squadron. And a lot of that comes with tasks. And whilst you go away for for this two days, 
it'd be great for the, the young officer to be able to take over. So see this as a development opportunity. So we spent a couple of days together. I, I talked about the site. I talked about the team. And, and I said, soldiers are fantastic, but soldiers will always take shortcuts and will always get to the finish line as quickly as they can. Because that's what we do. We're winners. We want to get there. And so I said, that's great in day-to-day activity. But when you're constructing, that can sometimes have an impact on the quality that you then deliver. I went away. I come back and, uh, and she was absolutely chuffed to bits. Her first opportunity to do a little bit of command, be in charge of the team, in her eyes that they delivered and, and that no one had gone out, got drunk or done something that they shouldn't have done. So we went to the site the next day and the quality of the work wasn't what it should have been. And that was kind of that first lesson to say, look, you've got your wall, but it's not as good as the wall needs to be. I said to her, there's a difference between doing something and doing it well. And I think that's what we pride ourselves on in the British Army, is that we always look to how we can be better. It was a, an interesting time. How did she learn from that? What were the lessons that you then coached her through over the time? Was she then permanently attached to you in that unit? No, she, she went away and, and actually we bumped into each other a couple of years later. And, and she said um, it was the importance of, of having oversight. It was the importance of having those frank discussions with the section commanders and calling them out when, when they weren't meeting their standards. And she um, learned from that and carried that forwards into the rest of her career. Yeah, that's exactly what she told me. So you've talked there about an example of direct mentorship of, of an officer that was coming in and working with your, with your troop. When you then became a WO2, we're jumping over Staff Sergeant now, you were at the Combat Engineer School. And this was a time when you had a much more direct role of coaching and mentorship of future leaders. What were the things that you had taken from your experience up until that point that you wanted to make sure they understood? We always talk about how great the impact of our colour sergeants are on our our young officers at Sandhurst. And so I got these brand new officers and I would teach them demolitions or or bridging training. So this is after they've left Sandhurst and this is where they're learning to be Royal Engineers. Exactly that. And so the, the experiences I'd kind of pulled through the field army that I wanted to get into them really quickly was more of that day to day business. It was more about that, how you get the team to react to you quickly. Because Sandhurst, in my opinion, and and I might get pulled for this, will make out that every platoon commander or troop commander is going to go in and save the day because it hasn't been run properly or it needs them to make everything better. Well, that's very rarely the case. It's not to say that when they come in as young officers, they don't add value and that, that leadership and that development and their command. But if they run in thinking they're Superman or Superwoman, then they're going to make a grave mistake and and their teams will bunch up and and go against them. I read a a paper about an academic that went out to see some Royal Marines training and when the new platoon commanders came in there, and I think this describes it best, the platoon commander would give their first set of orders. It was witnessed that the soldiers would be looking at the platoon sergeant almost in a Roman-esque thumbs up, thumbs down, are we going to do what he says? And I think that was the great example is that when you're new in, you've got to be quite humble. You've got to get to know your team. You've got to have those conversations and understand how it works to be able to get the best of them. So that relationship from the example you've talked about with the Royal Marines with the platoon sergeant is the critical one for a young officer. 
but they also need to get to know their entire team. And is that just time spent chatting to them in the cookhouse, having a cup of tea? Because is this more than just the formal interview that you have when you take over a platoon or a troop? Unbelievably. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Troop commanders, notebooks, platoon commanders, notebooks are great. And that's the formal bit of the job. But we don't tend to build our best teams through formality. We do it in the margins. We do it in the jobs. We do it when that platoon commander's mucking in. If your soldiers are building trenches, there is nothing that will open a soldier up to just talking to you and feeling like you're part of the team than you getting dirty in that trench and, and getting your hands on. Now, you're still a commander. You can't spend your whole time digging trenches, fixing vehicles, but you can spend some time. And the more time you spend with your soldiers, the, the quicker the trust is built up. And with trust comes belief in them as commanders. So it's showing not just conceptual understanding, but also willing and a sense of, I can do the things you do. And whilst I might have a different rank to you, I'm not superior and beyond doing that sort of work. That really matters, does it, to the soldiers? Yeah, I, I think so. I jump ahead to when I was a sergeant major. We had to get a, a bridge pulled back. Fortunately, it had gone wrong. Whereabouts um, was this? This was just on Salisbury Plain, one of our squadron-level exercises. So uh, we'd built a bridge, we're recovering it in dark. We're on tight timelines to return the equipment. The bridge skewed, and for the combat engineers on the call, we'll understand that that makes it quite dangerous. It's a lot of weight. It's a dangerous activity. So... We were then caught, our timelines um, got extended, we had to address it, which meant all hands in. And I remember being on the bridge, using my previous experience to, to help move things on. And then I, I started gripping someone that was in a dangerous position. And when I looked over, I realized it was my OC. Who's a major. He's a major, yeah. He, and, and he said to me, I was like, what are you doing here, sir? You're in the wrong place firstly, and, and why are you here? And he said, well, if, if the troops are up all night stripping this bridge out, then, then I'm going to be. And it was amazing how powerful that was to the troops. So even if he was in the wrong position. Even if he was in the wrong position. <laughs> but hey, that's expected of officers. So... <laughs> So this was whilst you were the Sergeant Major at 3-6 Engineer Regiment. That's right. Yeah. And you also had quite an important role there of bringing on a new capability into the wider army. What were the challenges behind that for you in terms of managing expectations, but also managing expectations for the rest of the squadron, the soldiers? Just to add a bit more weight onto that capability. So it was called Op Talisman during the time in Afghanistan. It was about clearing routes. So imagine a lot of heavily armoured vehicles, high trained search operators and EOD operators to, to make sure we cleared routes for vehicles. So that's making sure that there's no IEDs, improvised explosive devices or bombs or other ambush techniques along the route exactly that so it had been made and designed for afghanistan and our squadron was looking if uh, that capability could be brought into mainstream army so it was a trial for one of the better and i think the first job certainly for me as a sergeant major was to acknowledge that using adair's balls and, and predominantly task over over individual and team what's adair's balls so Adair wrote on leadership and, and he'd done quite a lot of leadership that the army now uses today. Basically free interlinking balls on leadership based on individual, task and team. And he would uh, say that they all need to be balanced to be able to, to get the best. I would argue 
at times in the military, we tend to focus very much on the task. And as we went into trying to convert this capability, that was my worry, was that we would concentrate on the task, delivering it on short timelines, that we would forget about the individuals and our teams. So I had a frank discussion with, with the OC that I knew that he would concentrate on the capability and how to deliver that for the core, the Royal Engineers. And as such, I would pull my way, myself away from that capability and concentrate on our people and building our team because it was a tough environment. Long hours trying to deliver our day job of construction engineers as well as um, trying to bring in this new capability with all the vehicles, the skill sets that were needed. It was a difficult time for our squadron. By allowing them to develop that, looking up and out, I could concentrate on the down and in. What did you do to look after them? What did they need? Firstly, I think they needed engagement. They needed to remember that they weren't there just to fix vehicles and that they were soldiers. So for me, our health is really important, be that mental, physical, societal health was really important. So that's what I bedded in to begin with. I bedded in a, a program so that they could know what they were doing. So PT, and, and it's easy to say, but very few units do do it. Everyone came to PT. PT's physical training, Physical fitness. training, yes. Our unit was in a unit based with two Gurkha squadrons. Gurkha squadrons tend to be very fit, very proactive. I used that as a way of developing those people. I didn't want to be second or third to, to the two Gurkha squadrons. We were going we to compete and we, we were going to get after that. So would you set up competitions around fitness and sport to help motivate your squadron? Firstly, the competitions were already bedded into the regiment and it was always expected that, that we would, from the field squadrons, so that the more active squadrons, that we would usually pick up third place. I wasn't happy with that. So we bedded in a programme that allowed us to get after that so that when these competitions come round, we were competing. And I remember once we won one of the competitions, I thought we'd won the Olympics. It was such a defining moment and brought a level of positivity. But what we also done, acknowledging that we were deployable troops, was that we, we set goals for ourselves. At the time, they no longer exist. There was a, a thing called the operational fitness tests that went beyond the basic fitness tests that we usually do in the military. Between me and the, the physical training instructor at our unit, we devised a plan to be able to pass all of those tests. And again, that gave something for our soldiers to aim for and to achieve. There's so much we could cover with you, with your experience, but something I'd really like to touch on is how you had some personal challenges in your life and that has helped you reflect on how we look after people in the army. I went through a, a tough divorce because I, I think the primary reason, I always put the army before my family. First lesson, don't do that. That led to uh, getting to see my, my son, then that led to debt to kind of cover all the costs of trying to fight these cases. And I was quite insular about the thing. I was a senior NCO at the time and thought all these things would impact my career and how wrong I was. I use that from a leadership stance in the fact that our young commanders, be that Lance Corporal, platoon commanders, all, all the way up to our COs, is to understand that, that people have lives on top of their military service. And those lives will be different for every single person. 
And this goes back to that getting to know people. The more you know people, the more you understand what makes them tick, what's important to them. Their personal lives will impact their military lives. I think by understanding that, by helping people through it, firstly, will allow them to be better soldiers. But secondly, if you support someone during a hard time, they are more likely to show their loyalty and stay in that organisation because they know if they come up a hard time again, that they're going to be able to be supported through that. And also as a commander, you then just have the understanding. Why is this person not attending all the social events that we used to do? Why is this person quieter than normal yeah exactly that we we are quite a social organization and and the sergeant's mess is a prime example and we'll have dinner nights we'll have social events and recently i was approached by a, a warrant officer that said he didn't want to be a member of the mess my bullish first response was well if you don't want to partake in the mess life then maybe the army isn't the right place for you but we we sat down and had a discussion and and he said, well, look, we're in a cost of living crisis. I have five children. So a dinner night for me in the mess is pizza night for my kids. He was also a recovering alcoholic. And he said, I don't want to be coming into an environment that is based around alcohol, is based around drinking. And it changed my whole mindset really, really quickly. And I brief a lot of courses and I always say, especially to our generals, to our brigadiers, that they've sacrificed time with their families, their hobbies, their social activities to do things for the army. Not everyone is willing to make those same sacrifices. Paul, there's so much more I'd love to talk to you about. Your time at ICSE as the first soldier not wearing a commission rank to go through that staff course and, of course, your time as the Army Sergeant Major. But I think we're going to have to focus on the junior leadership bits here. And having listened to you, I think... What I've really understood is this transition from this, as you said, um, sort of slightly more arrogant and bullshit time as a Lance Corporal through to understanding particularly the needs of soldiers and developing that empathy. And I think what I take from your leadership style is the importance of understanding your people and then being able to think about translating the mission to get the people on board. Would you say that's a fair assessment of how you lead? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and it's, it's quite funny you say that because we say the command sergeant majors are known as translators to be able to translate between senior officers and, and our most junior soldiers. So, We're going to finish with three quickfire questions, as always. What is your perfect way to spend a Sunday? I'm quite busy in this role and lucky enough if I get Sundays. But um, usually a late start, uh, a great breakfast, and then uh, out walking with the dogs and time with my family. What films, books, podcasts, or people have taught you the most about leadership? So I, I really like the Wavell Room. I think it brings different ideas and, and it goes from the most junior ranks all the, all the way up. Some of the American military podcasts are pretty good. And I love Matthew Saeed's books, Black Box Thinking and Rebel Ideas, to the point I actually give out the Rebel Ideas to soldiers when I go and visit them because I love the, the talk about diversity of thought. And uh, I think that's exactly what an NCO is in, in an officer world. And if you were to give one piece of advice to Lance Corporal or Corporal Carney about leadership, what would it be? I think it would be that you, you don't know everything. And every day there's people that know a bit more than you and you can learn from them. And so your ideas might be important, but they might not be the centre of everyone's universe. 
Paul Carney, Army Sergeant Major, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. WO1 Carney reflected on how his leadership style adapted to changing situations and jobs. But he distilled 25 years of leadership experience into the phrase, knowing your people. As a Royal Engineer, he spent lots of time working with different units and people and realised that if you want to achieve a task as a leader, then you need to build a team which requires understanding of the situation and developing individuals. Paul referred to this as a balancing act of Adair's three balls, which is also known as action-centred leadership and is the cornerstone of the Army's leadership model. That means not just inspiring them and knowing what motivates them, it is about understanding that they have lives beyond their military service. His experience revealed the critical role of junior and senior NCOs. They support both their soldiers and their commanders. They interpret the vision of the mission and challenge the team to get it done, but they also look after the team's interests and well-being. If you're a soldier or family member who's been affected by any of the topics in this episode, visit the Army's Ask for Help page. Just search for British Army Ask for Help on Google and it should be one of the first search results. The link will also be in this episode's show notes. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the United Kingdom government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.